I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 9th, 2016. On this week's show, we'll talk about the opening weekend of the NFL playoffs with a particular focus on the New York Giants' party boat and their devotion to bare-chestedness in both warm and cold weather. We'll then discuss ESPN's Chris Berman, who will soon be back, 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 please kill me, gone from our television sets. And the great game of darts will be discussed on this podcast for the first time ever. Starts. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Shit. I didn't think of a nickname for you. No, just Stefan Shit. Let's go for it. <laughs> Stefan Shit. Fatsis. Man, I can't believe Berman beat me at that ESPN audition. Still bitter about that. The author of the books, Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. I'm sure you got a, a lot of cruel nicknames as a child on the playground, so I'm not going to perpetuate it. Just given your personality. I'm Minnesota sure. Fatsis. Oh, that's good. Isn't that good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steph, Stefan Boat Fatsis, just to go with the nautical theme and the theme of my not being able to come up with nicknames mm-hmm. on the fly. And with us, as always, from New York is Mike. Bed, bed and breakfast. Bag and nails. Baby ton. These are all, <laughs> these are all darts terms. A baby ton is a score of 95. A bed and breakfast is, of course, a 26. Bag and nails, landing all three darts in the ones. Bag of nails. Boom. You're wasting boom, all of our afterball names. <laughs> Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Jest. Hey, Mike. I like hey. how we've conflated the Berman and the darts, though. Uh huh. Yeah. Bag of nails. We do. Dark, dark, dark. Bag of nails. We're the conflators. So there's no whimsy watch during the playoffs. I don't know if you guys remember that. It's very, it's too serious. There's yes. uh, no time for shenanigans. I have some scorigami news, though, which I think qualifies. Quick scorigami news. There was no scorigami in the playoffs, but you might recall that John Boyce and I noted in the podcast that Pro Football Reference does not 
include the one-point final scores, 6-1, 8-1, 9-1, et cetera. Pro Football Reference has updated its database of missing scores to include 6-1, 8-1, 9-1, et cetera. Wow. I messaged with Sean Foreman, the founder of sportsreference.com, and he said, yes, it's because of John Boyce. They fixed the database. I hope that people who are carving your gravestone have gotten this news. It's, uh, it's or John like, Boyce's gravestone. <laughs> some new, uh, or your, your Hall of Fame plaque, one or the other. One or the other. Can, can you use a Hall of Fame plaque as a gravestone? It seems like a great- uh, Same shape, efi- right? Efficiency. You can use it as a murder uh, weapon. Why not? Why not all three? In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I thought we could talk about our favorite pub games. Oh. Maybe I shouldn't be presumptuous. Oh. Maybe Mike Pasca hates all pub games and has just been waiting for this opportunity no. to tell yeah. the world. I want to give the pub game pub. There has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. We're offering 30% off an annual membership right now. That's just $35 for a year of Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangup plus. The four home teams and four favorites, the Texans, Seahawks, Steelers, and Packers, all won on the NFL's wildcard weekend and all by healthy margins. The 19-point average uh, of victory was the biggest on the opening weekend of the NFL playoffs since 1981. The biggest blowout was Green Bay's 38-13 to win over the New York Giants at Lambeau Field, a game the Giants led 6 to nothing until late in the first half when the Packers scored a touchdown, and then Aaron Rodgers hit Randall Cobb with a Hail Mary as time expired in the first half. As the score widened after halftime, the conversation changed to a meta-conversation about the conversation about Giants receiver Odell Beckham, who was photographed shirtless on a boat in Miami with a handful of his teammates earlier in the week. Here's Joe Buck and Troy Aikman early in the fourth quarter in the seconds after a ball caromed off Beckham's fingertips. There's Beckham, and it's off his hands. And right or wrong, fair or not fair, when you do what Beckham and the receiver crew did on the off day Monday, and that pass was a little too deep for Odell Beckham, but he has not been the typical presence or weapon in this game. People will go back and... Well, point out that trip. Those are two drops that he's got in this game, and they're costly. And that ball, I don't know why he jumped. If he runs, he can, he runs right through the catch, and it's a it was a well-thrown ball, and you got to make that play. You don't get more open than that in the NFL. Those are two huge drops by Odell Beckham. Oh, my God, so much going on in there. you got to make the play. I had that question because he's um, – in the box score, it says he has three drops. I don't even know if that's in the box score, but that's like an official NFL stat. Mm-hmm. Is the guy who records what is a drop, do they go around the NFL office and is just the guy who says, you got to make that catch the loudest? <laughs> is that the official, yes. the official drop counter? And that guy's nickname is Skrillex because he records <laughs> the drops. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Berman 2.0. Uh, <laughs> the, okay, so back to the clip. The right or wrong, fair or not fair. Yeah, right. From Buck- Berman's making yeah. a Skrillex. Right. Swedish house mafia <laughs> reference. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the, the right or wrong, fair or not fair. 
from Joe Buck is so great because it's as if there's some immutable law of the universe at work here and nobody has any agency. <laughs> People are and saying post- it's very Trumpian. <laughs> Just saying. I wrote that down. It is totally Trumpian. The post game, it's, it's as if the post game abandoned ship and shipwrecked headlines mm-hmm. on the covers of the New York tabloids were written by nautical pun making robots <laughs> rather than actual humans. Just like we have no choice. We have to talk about this, Stefan. You got to say yachts all folks was pretty good though. <laughs> mm-hmm. I give credit to the post, the New York post for that. The daily news fell down on the job a little bit. Yeah. Big post- blues party boat hits iceberg in green Bay for mm-hmm. the subhead. Nobody used Titanic. Nobody used uh, Mina Kimes' catamorons either, which I think was pretty good. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> that's a, those are your thoughts? Yeah. That's well, all you got? <laughs> that's all I've got on the headlines. Well, continue. What else do you have for us? On the Joe Buck sanctimony? Or just on the boat. The boat. I think anything on a boat is funny. Yeah. Das Boat. A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, particularly because of the Minnesota Vikings party boat. Sex boat, Stefan. Sorry. We use, the proper, use the proper terminology. <laughs> um. Here's what I have to say. In my experience having this conversation with National Football League players, the point that they make over and over again is that their work environment is one of the most repressive and oppressive that we know for people that make a lot of money. Um, (laughs) Having a day off means having a day off. It's like being in a mine shaft, essentially. They can do whatever the fuck they want on their day off. They recognize that people will scrutinize what they do on their day off in situations like this one and criticize them if they fail. But ultimately, they're allowed to get on a plane for two and a half hours and enjoy a weekend in the sun in the middle of the frigging winter in New Jersey on their day off. Who would uh, prevent the wide receivers from going on Trey Songz's yacht. We've all done the same. I love the the word party used as a verb. Yeah. They partied. Mm-hmm. They partied with Justin Bieber. They partied on a yacht and were offered Adderall. They partied. Oh, it is a verb. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed Troy Aikman joining in with the uh, consternation, oh, the condemnation. Was he not aware that the Dallas Cowboys uh, had the White House in Alvin Harper's name, where several me- believe, members Mike. of the several members of the Cowboys would use it to uh, spirit in cocaine and hookers on this cul-de-sac right near Irving, I, I, Texas? I believe the line that Joe Buck threw to Troy Aikman to discuss this was the game has changed a lot since you played. (laughs) Oh, I see. Yeah. Back that. See, but I will say the difference is Michael Irvin (laughs) held on to the ball. And while it is true. Justin Bieber wasn't even alive back then. Michael Irvin also held on to a pair of scissors. Yes. And Alvin Harper held on to the hooters of several hookers. But here's the point. This is why it was an immature decision. Obviously, the only thing, let's say the guy partied on a Monday and he had a bad Tuesday in terms of preparation and where he should be. He was in the right spot. He didn't do anything wrong mentally. There's no six day physical holdover that would cause him to drop the ball. It's not like he wasn't on the same game plan. That's the only possible logical point you Uh can make. But the illogical point is what is known as the anchoring heuristic. When we seek an explanation, the thing that is available, here's another heuristic to us, is that he did this weird thing or this thing out of the ordinary that maybe we wouldn't have done on Monday. And that's why it was, in fact, an immature decision. And I would not have done it because you know you play in New York. I would not have done it because I'm 44 and not Odell Beckham. But uh, because (laughs) you don't know Justin Bieber. And you don't know Trey Songz either. Yeah, Yeah, and because, you know, I don't have those good hookups with the party boat uh, charter company. But... 
you're going to open yourself up to the criticism. And if you're going to have a press conference where you get all angry and bang your head against the locker, see, the immature thing is not to be able to see scenarios play out two or three moves ahead. So in retrospect, I bet he regrets going on the boat, if not because it affected his play, if only it affected the headache after his play. Take away I'm the boat sure. scenario. You just well, say, wait. Odell had a great season and it sucks that he dropped those balls, but he had such a great season. How do you blame Odell? I mean, it's just an unfortunate thing. With the boat, he becomes a villain. It could color his entire, what should be a love affair between New York and Odell. And that's why he should regret having gone on the boat. Oh, now you're sounding like the media yourself, Mike, in, in indicting Odell Beckham. Maybe Odell Beckham and the three other wide receivers didn't care what the reaction would With be. Shepard on the boat, he had a really they good lost. Catch, Who cares? <laughs> this is going to end in two days. The headlines will go away. They will go to their offseason, which will last about a week. Shepard was be... on the boat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Let's listen to the Odell uh, postgame presser here. This was before or after he punched a hole in the wall. Unclear. At the end of the day, I went through practice, um, had zero drops, zero misassignments. Um, there was nothing that could connect seven days ago to today and how we came out and played and executed. There's, there's just nothing in the world that's not realistic. Um, I think it did a great job at creating distractions for us. Um, and it's unfortunate. That's just that's just the way this world is. I'm a little confused by that last line. The, it did a great job of creating distractions for us because then maybe what he's saying is in defense of what you say, Mike, which is that he should have anticipated that it could create distractions and therefore it could affect us because he's almost implying that it did affect us. Three-dimensional hot take chess there. You got to What's the Wayne Gretzky thing? You've got to you've got to pass the take to where yeah. the take's going to be. Yeah, and it might only be warm when you pass it. It might heat up upon the passing. Can we talk about the not wearing sleeves and going out in pregame with no clothing on when it was what three degrees outside? Mm-hmm. What's the point? Like the the I, I'm still at a loss for the 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 what is it a manliness thing? Is it a football code thing? I still don't understand the not wearing sleeves. I mean, if it, if you feel like it impacts your ability to move and catch the ball, I understand. Any other reason, I don't get it. I mean, it's just obviously a stupid macho thing. Yeah. And it's like a performative way whereby you show the other team and the world that you're not affected by this thing that you're clearly affected, affected by. by. So if we're going to say that Beckham doesn't care what people think that seems to be extremely far from the truth. Like the way in which he behaves kind of constantly, he seems extraordinarily aware of whether it's like proposing to the kicking net Mm -hmm. after he punched it. Um, (laughs) Basically everything that he does on the field and off, it seems like he knows that he's being watched and that he's being scrutinized and going out and catching balls before the game starts sure without was. a shirt and without pants on. Don't forget, your legs can get cold, too. <laughs> uh, That's obviously designed to have people like look at how tough he is. And if he had had a really good game, it would have burnished the legend of Odell Beckham that he had gone on this boat that he sloughed off the haters and that he caught, you know, eight balls for 150 yards and naked. two touchdowns. Naked. Totally buck ass naked mm-hmm. on the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. And he has accrued so much fame 
from being in New York and from making one hand catches and from, you know, having cool hair. And he will accrue a lot of fame and a lot of, uh, you know, positive coverage the next time he does something great. Which he will. And this is the opposite of that. And this is the opposite of that. And so what? Can you imagine the boat-related touchdown celebrations that will occur? <laughs> the nautical, the rowing, the port and starboard side, the land ho. We're going to get all fishing. of them. Do they do fishing? They can reel uh, in a marlin. Yep. yep. Yeah. So why did the Giants lose though? The Giants had an opportunity to have to be leading by more than six nothing, and their play calling and their decision making was predictably and to Troy Aikman's. Uh, viewpoint appropriately conservative. They had a chance to go for it on fourth and three from there, from uh, the Packers 35 yard line. They punted, pinned them back, but still they had a chance to go for it on fourth and three from the Packers eight yard line and they chose to kick a field goal. So, you know, oh, no, Beckham they... also dropped a pass in the end zone. Yeah. And oh yeah. I pu- forgot. I noted. No, this. he did. No, I know he, he did. did. I know he did. Don't I know roll. He did. I know that, he did. That's not an eye, uh, an eye rolling moment. Well, he I did know, drop a pass in the end zone. He dropped a pass in the end zone, but they had other opportunities to try to get into the end. Okay. Now this is the interesting thing. Their loss was, and I think we as humans have a hard time with this. Their loss was overdetermined. It had many mothers. And it's exactly like the election where you could say that Hillary Clinton lost and you could say, no, she lost because she said the if she hadn't said the plurables, would she have lost? In fact, this game she is- lost because ex- of Meryl Streep's speech. This game is extremely like the election. Hillary mm-hmm. was the Giants. One, they're New York-based. Mm-hmm. Two, they, w- they took Wisconsin for granted. They didn't compete hard in Wisconsin. Three, mm-hmm. early on, it looked like the Giants would be able to neutralize the Whites, i.e. Jordy. But he didn't because the Whites wo- roared back, i.e. Clay. The diverse coalition is represented by the Giants receiving core, Victor Cruz and so forth. Not as mm-hmm. robust as the Packers mostly white lineup. In fact, four-fifths of their line, white guys. The vaunted blue wall crumbled. The ground game was off. And the Packers seemed to have the Giants playbook. I suspect the Russians. Also, they kind of look like they were wearing pantsuits because they had the white uniforms. Mm -hmm. Did you guys hear the kind of narrative wheels grinding when the Packers went for it on fourth down? They got stuffed. The Giants immediately went down and scored to cut it to 14 Mm -hmm. to 13. And Troy Aikman was like, they shouldn't have gone for it there. You can't really go for it there. Momentum. And then as soon as the Packers go down and score um, immediately, then they start talking about, oh, you could go for it there because you have Aaron Rodgers. Ah. It was unreal. It was unreal. And then the take should have once, then been to be consistent. If you go for it, you can't take the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands. And then, as soon as the score gets out of hand, then you can't. Once it's like overdetermined, once once there are so many different reasons that the game has been lost, you can just focus on the most entertaining reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so where does this rank in the all-time list of? going somewhere you're not supposed to go before a playoff game. There's Vince Carter, Eastern Conference semifinals, 2001. Graduating from college? Before <laughs> game seven. He's having this great series, this duel with Allen Iverson. He flies to his graduation at uh, UNC, comes back, misses a shot with a couple seconds to go to have his team lose the playoff series. That to me is an all-timer. Should not have graduated from college. I think that one's number one on the list. 
The thing that I don't that I only realized when I went back and looked at this uh, this morning, and I don't know if anyone's actually commented on this. Vince Carter got his degree in African American studies from uh, North oh, Carolina. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And the scandal around the African American studies department at UNC goes back to 1997. So this is not uh, something that happened after. Vince Carter left kind of changes the whole valence of the Vince Carter graduation conversation. The other all time great is Michael Jordan going to the casino in Atlantic city. Yeah. During the Eastern conference finals in 1993, they won that series because it was the bulls and Michael Jordan was, this really? was the last championship in their first three peat. But in that game, game two in Madison square garden, uh, the next day, and he had reportedly been out to two thirty in the morning, but he disputed it and said he was in bed by one a.m. Anyway, the next game they lost, and Jordan shot twelve for thirty-two. Mm-hmm. Well, I How mean, do you do though? How do you do in the casino? <laughs> he unclear. I don't know. Well, I would say the two big ones are Eugene Robinson going to the hooker before the Super Bowl and tragically not to make fun of Barrett Robbins going kind of insane and going to Mexico before the Super Bowl. And then I guess anything that like Charles Barkley said before a finals, he went there. (laughs) But I just don't know. What is the statute of limitations here? Because it was. There is none. It's a take. But the statute is until you actually win a championship, right? No, but all of the ones that we just mentioned are like the day before. Right. Where it seems, it a actually week? does seem leg- on your day off doing nothing wrong. Yeah, it, it does seem legitimate the the casino one. Um, but that's the thing. It's like if somebody happens to post it to Instagram, or somebody sees you in a casino. I think it was on a Zach Lowe podcast, or I was um, listening to this the last couple of weeks. That this is something that teams are actually concerned about and it doesn't usually get out that there are like lots of guys he was talking about in the NBA specifically that are just like going out and quote unquote partying uh, a lot like during like right before a game. Yeah. And there are jokes about like, oh, you're, you know, the day game in Miami uh, on Sunday, the like visiting team is going to lose and and all that stuff. But if it's like fucking seven days uh, before, that seems uh, right. in like the it's most not restrictive relevant. sport. I mean, there is very little room for these guys to a release some tension from playing this game, or b doing stuff without doing stuff without being noticed by management and reprimanded by management. It should be noted that Connor Cook got a lot of sleep the day before he sucked against the Texans. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week, ESPN announced that Chris Berman was rumbling, bumbling, stumbling, frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. Eric sleeping with Bienemy. Whoop, 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 whoop. Sorry. I, can you kick me? My circuits got a little <laughs> scrambled there. I don't know what happened. Blacked out for a second. Last week, ESPN announced that Chris Berman was stepping down after 31 years as the host of the cable network's NFL studio shows, though he will retain a limited role 
offering opinion and perspective on historical events in the NFL. Berman is probably the voice most associated with ESPN. He was one of the original hosts of SportsCenter, as well as the highlight show NFL Primetime. And he brought his trademark annoying shtick to such events as the NFL Draft and Major League Baseball's Home Run Derby. In a celebratory interview with Scott Van Pelt on SportsCenter last week, Berman said that when he came into the office that day, he played the songs Take It to the Limit, Rocket Man, and The Last Resort, the last song on the Eagles' Hotel California record, which then led into a long lyrical analysis that I did not listen to. I grew up watching Chris Berman. I have a lot of residual affection and nostalgia for NFL primetime, which we can get into uh, in a bit. But I find him insufferable, as I think the right word. Uh, what do you think, Mike? Um, first of all, you know what's fascinating? LeBron James is closer in age to Steph Curry than Chris Berman is to Skip Bayless. I don't know why Skip Bayless is the mark of youth, but Chris Berman's four years younger than Skip Bayless. He just seems, you know, kind of ancient. I'm fortunate because I was in college and we uh, played this drinking game and there were a lot of Chris Berman catchphrases involved. So this at least tells me, gives me a signpost that when I was 20 or 20, oh, it must have been 21 if it was a drinking game. I thought he was kind of <laughs> funny, right? I, I liked the nicknames. There yeah. was a time when we all liked the nicknames. Mm-hmm. And then I, the internet, especially Deadspin, really piled on Berman, who to me was just like, what did he do? He was a sideshow guy who gave you some nicknames and tried to make highlights fun. This isn't a very important job. It was revealed, uh, especially in Those Guys Have All the Fun, the ESPN book, that he thinks his highlight show made the NFL, which is crazy out of control ego. So the Berman pendulum has certainly swung like uh, Tommy James and the Shondells or the swinging medallions who, of course, wait, what was their song? There's from South Carolina. They did the rock and the moon. I'm going to get the swinging medallion song. Anyway, yeah, we've given him we've probably given him too much flack, but overall, he is uh, just a somewhat annoying showman who did highlights. Okay. Chris Berman, though, and ESPN were unable to recognize what had happened in the internet era, that he had overstayed his welcome as a shtick provider. He is listed, by the way, on the Wikipedia entry for shtick, among other shtick shtick purveyors, but right between Johnny Carson and George Carlin, um, which actually probably gives Chris Berman a little bit too much credit. Um, so the inability to adapt to the times is where Chris Berman is a complete annoyance and ESPN is a total failure. I mean, he is a, another example of someone who was enabled for decades, um, started off fine, then um, because of whatever power within the company, whatever alliances he had forged with the company, he was allowed to stay on despite him being um, undermined, criticized, exposed as a fraud and a petulant asshole in the booth very often in the studio. What do you mean by fraud? Uh, that he pretended to be something that he wasn't, that he was sort of an icon of sports and that what he was doing was important to the future of sports. Don't call me a sports personality, he said to one interviewer at one point. I mean, Chris Berman made himself bigger than anything he talked about and proudly was a shill for the NFL and had no qualms with that. And ESPN went along with that as ESPN has done in certain situations. I think you guys are dating 
the point at which he became dated incorrectly. Mm. I think it was when uh, Keith Olbermann and Dan Patrick took over the smarter, funnier, right, and just more modern. It yeah. was like, yeah, except you know, they took they were doing now they were doing Sports Center when I was in college and it was great. I mean, they started doing it, and I we still thought Chris Berman was funny. So maybe it, it happened around that time. There was some overlap, but okay. certainly Berman was was uh, usurped because other people were more intelligent and were remaking this medium. Well, Olbermann and Patrick were like Letterman and he was like Leno. Like he is like the Jay Leno of sports television. It's just like, you know, one-liners. It's very old-fashioned, shticky. References are all dated. Lance, you've sunk my blank and chip. So I've got a clip. There's some music in the background because this was a – 20th anniversary ESPN package where he talks about how he came up with the nickname thing. Let's listen to that. This ultimate frisbee. John Pythagoras theory. Eric sleeping with the enemy. Chris Calloway. It has evolved into something else totally, a whole language within itself. Now, June 1980, one of them came out. By act. Could have been Frank Tanana Dacker or John Mayberry RFP. Everyone, are, are you, the camera started shaking. The producer talked in my ear and said, what are you doing? I don't have one yet. And now, if a player doesn't have a nickname, they get upset. I love the self-serious linguistic yes. academic yes. deconstruction of what he does. But the way he says, it could have been Frank Tanana Dacry. <laughs> It could have been John Mayberry RFD. But can I, when, when, when Stuart Scott died, I mean, it was tragic that he died, but he was lauded and we had uh, his contemporaries on the show to talk about the importance. What did he do? He, from his purview and perspective and milieu, uh, larded highlights with catchphrases. I mean, how was that so different? It, it would have been nice if Berman had tried to, you know, reference a song recorded past 1987. Fine, but he didn't. To me, I always thought I thought the title of that ESPN book, those guys had all the fun, was weird. And I never thought of ESPN like that. But apparently a lot of people do. A lot of people thought that it was just, you know, a fun house and he was the chief clown. And so I think we in the media who do things a little bit differently denigrate what he does, which is a showman for the masses. And even though he had an outsized ego and had an inflated sense of his importance with the sport itself, he was a fine entertainer who didn't deserve the millions he made, but probably deserved some portion thereof. Double here's, shot of here's my, what the double shot of my baby's love, by the way, was <laughs> the swing of the down song. <laughs> here's, here's the difference. Stuart Scott was told repeatedly at ESPN and before he got to ESPN that he couldn't talk the way that he talked because okay. he was not speaking in a way that you could speak on TV because he was too black and that he was talking too black and that there weren't people that sounded like Stuart Scott sounded. And so even if you found, and I will not, you know, I, I will say it myself, even if I found Stuart Scott to be annoying sometimes. He was still important, and a lot of people felt like they were seeing themselves on TV for the first time and felt like heard and understood and represented by him. And so he was important in that regard. Chris Berman is like there, – there are lots of people like Chris Berman on television. The fact that there is not a sitcom on CBS about Chris Berman's life I think is the greatest upset of our age. <laughs> he represents what – TV executives think people want to see, which is like a white dude referencing classic rock. And the fact that 
ESPN, as Stefan said, didn't recognize that he was outdated and that maybe somebody else should be the face of the network seems like a big error. But wait, but wait, wait, wait. I have to push, can I just push back on that? I'll give you, I'll give you the racial component. But there was a time when Chris Berman was uh, rebellious, not equally rebellious, and the the stakes weren't as high. But it's exactly like when we look back at those, you know, Harold Ramis or Animal House comedies, and they seem very masculine and very white and out of step with, and and pretty (coughs) safe because it was just whatever, the patriarchy and all that. But Berman was a break from, he was a reverence, you know, and he was a break from the reverence of sports casting. I don't disagree with you. And if I, yeah, I, and he I was should fu- have acknowledged right. that. It did get but, old and tired and it was a shame that it was never updated, but there was some innovation. And he even was talking in that clip that the players thought of it as an insult and then they came to like it. And I think we've just priced in that irreverence. And for the last 20 years, it wasn't updated, but at a time, not Stuart Scott-esque, the, st- the stakes weren't as high, but he was still representing a break from tradition. And so sure, was Leno. And was. so was Leno, by the way. The, the, the analogy is good. My point is just that it got really old yeah, fast. Yeah. And that this multi-billion dollar network chose to allow it to continue. And not only that, what Berman also came to represent about the relationship between the network and the NFL did damage to ESPN. Richard Deitch pointed this out in a piece uh, over the weekend. Berman ultimately chose the path of being NFL PR over sports journalism. It made him rich and famous, but also a delivery clerk, bringing Paul Tagliabue and Roger Goodell's messages up the river and into your living room. And the desire not to do anything remotely journalistic. And I think Berman would say, I'm not a journalist, but I'm not a sports personality either. So what am I? I'm an entertainer? Well, guess what, ESPN? You're not entirely in the entertainment business because you are in bed with the NFL and you have people like Chris Berman carrying the NFL's water. As he once said, I'm a simple guy. I don't watch TV. I don't go on the internet. So I never watched Playmakers, the show that the NFL forced the ESPN to cancel about the inner life of a professional football league. But I knew if the league was pissed, I should probably be pissed. ESPN could have gotten away from that taint a lot sooner than, uh, than, than it than it did if it ever did. There are a couple of things I want to say. Number one is ba- Bobby bad to the bonia. Number two <laughs> is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are two entirely separate reasons to criticize him, and for whatever reason, just him being annoying bothers me more because I just right. feel like you know he's an NFL shill. That's that is objectively worse. Than him, you know, describing then, a big hit as a Andre rac- Bad Moon Rising, <laughs> or or him describing <laughs> a big hit in the Monday Night Football game as a rack and pinion hit because the 49ers punter is Bradley Pinion, as uh, awful announcing noted. But you know what? I can't. Uh, what what can I tell you? I just find the rack and pinion thing more annoying than being a shell for the NFL. And the fact that he was getting the like Monday Night Football gig and that. And was really bad at it and was allowed to do golf, which he was even worse at. Allowed to do golf. Fuck you, man. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares about golf? I'm fine with him ruining golf. Um, but like the home run derby and the NFL draft, the point is just that every event that ESPN invested with importance, like he was the guy that they put out there. And it just seemed unearned by the end or, you know, like it was based on his accomplishments from 
the 80s. And it I did want to... based ma- on Hideo ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. <laughs> My last point is I, pro- I, pro- I promised to say something about NFL primetime. And my early sports watching Chris Berman experience was in the 80s when NFL primetime was the only place where you could see highlights of all the games. And ESPN, I think, paid good money to get that rights deal from the NFL. And so I would watch it every week. I would want to see the Saints highlights. And I can remember feeling like as a kid that, you know, when the Saints won, I really wanted to see what Chris Berman and Tom Jackson said. It like felt like a big deal, just like it was a big deal when John Madden and Pat Summerall called the game. And they did like these long extended clips and you got to actually see like the line play and the most important thing from the game, the things that you wouldn't necessarily see in the highlights. And it was like a cool and important show, and he was the head of it. And so that is my like positive, happy Chris Berman memory. Mm-hmm. And the E in ESPN stands for what Chris Berman embodied. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What, can you ever forgive? He did Tom really good. Way to help him. The Swami did really good against the spread this year. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> really good. <laughs> I thought the E in uh, ESPN stood for Tom East of Edens. <laughs> or no, wait. It actually stood for Joey Betty Davis Aishin. <laughs> Is there someone doing- Betty Davis Aishin. I All I right, we got it. Eddie, eat, drink, and be Murray. We got to get out of this segment before it I don't c- know that we can. Us all. The Seahawks with the uncalled, I can't feel my face mask penalty. I just want some, <laughs> uh, I just want some updates on the Berman. <laughs> I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. For the world title. 20. The bullseye! And Michael Baskerwin has waited three long years for that magical moment to be crowned King of Darts again. He owns every big title in the world of darts, but that was the one he wanted. The one he craved, the one he needed above all others. And he's got it. For the second time, Michael Van Gerwen earns the right to say, I am the world champion. What we just heard is darts. And what a darts it was. A week ago at Alexandra Palace in North London, the best darts player in the world became the darts champion of the world as Michael Van Gerwen defeated Gary Anderson seven sets to three to reclaim the title he lost two years earlier. As Andrew Kay wrote in a great piece for the New York Times, Van Gerwen is by far and away the best player in the world, the Michael Jordan of darts, in Kay's words. But all the darts wags were raising questions about if the 27-year-old Dutchman could dart it up when the darts darted most, and dart he did, losing just nine sets in seven matches, uh, we just heard a bit of the atmosphere of the world championships. And I got, once I kind of figured out that we were probably, we probably should talk about darts once that, uh, became clear. 
I got really into watching darts videos on YouTube, and darts is great. Darts is really, really amazing. The atmosphere at the darts place, the crowd, <laughs> the pace of the game mm-hmm. is incredible. I love darts. The body Stephen. types. Do yeah, there's no, there's no barrier in darts. The humblest young, young man or woman, boy or girl, can grow up. To be a Michael Van Gerwen. Has like a six-year-old ever won the darts world championship? It seems possible. Seems plausible. Maybe like a 17-year-old. Maybe Velcro. Those Velcro ball darts for safety's sake. Yeah, you don't want to start with the real darts. Did you have the Velcro ball darts? No, we had real darts. Yeah, but when I was young, we went Velcro. No, we didn't have Velcro. Yeah. You were soft, Mike. That's right. Yeah, seriously, Pesca. All right, let's talk about darts, though. We're, we're, we're darts. Is, That's I mean, the plan. That is the plan, but we've just, we've digressed into Velcro. Um, I like the darts. I never, I never had, I confess, I'd never examined the rules of darts or the way darts are played. Um, so you, it starts with each player has 501 points to start and you got to get down to exactly zero. And there are different scoring things. There's that a dart board. On the and you board. throw the dart at the board. At the board and where it lands within each numbered triangle cone shaped thing determines whether you get that number, double it, triple it. The bullseye is 50. There's a quote unquote bullseye. The bullseye. In the middle. 50 points. <laughs> yeah. So it's super strategic. Uh, good. This is helpful. Now I'm getting into it. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. What if, if the dart hangs and then falls? How long does it have to hang? That's a great question. Yeah. So we we often have an expert on the show just to answer questions like this. But, you know, we're just going to. We're winging it. We're winging it. We're going we're gonna to go after this ourselves. I wonder whether you have to be good at math to be good at darts. Yes. Because they throw the darts very quickly. It's like triple 20. Okay, that's a 60. I'm down to 170. Right. What do I have to do to go out? I would guess that. It's actually just like a spatial thing where you know where you need to throw. That they're actually not counting in their heads. Like, okay, I've got to throw a seventeen now. Where's the seventeen? It's like you just if you if you dart enough, you're going to know where on the board you, you need, need to, to throw. Go. Huh. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a very. I think it's sort of the sturdy little secret of darts is that it's a it's a math game that you have to combine those two those two skills. You got to be good at math. And good at darting. And good at subtracting. Good at subtracting. The answer is it's exactly like poker, which is when you're young, uh, knowing a little bit about or knowing a lot about math helps. But once we these guys, we're watching you and I or the people paying 25 quid to go to a tournament (laughs) where the drinks flow, they have it like there's no question that someone's going to make a math mistake. They've done this so often. Mm -hmm. They know every permutation and it doesn't really become there's only so many uh, situations to be in and it doesn't really become um, about thinking in the moment. But you know, when you're young, you kind of have to do some calculation, but by the main stage, there, there are very few mental mistakes. Cut to some darts experts going, I know, remember in 1989, <laughs> when he got this prime numbers. So Van Gerwen is a really fascinating guy. He does not practice. He won every major tournament this year. And it is just incredibly comforting to know that the darts media and the darts takes are exactly like the takes in every other sport. It's like, if he didn't win this world championship, he was going to be a total failure and like the worst human that ever lived. He's like won the most 
he has like the most amazing record, you know, best year ever. He's won all this prize money. But he'll never He's, be the Jack Nicholas of darts because the Phil Taylor of darts, the yeah. Phil Taylor of darts. Yes. 16 world championships at a time when, you know, nobody was darting. Yeah. yeah. And not at this level. <laughs> right. I mean, not during the right. gar- darts golden age that we're experiencing. Right. He, now. Was com- yeah. he was competing against people who actually practiced. He didn't have to compete against like some Michael Van Gerwen yeah. who never practices. But he does go to the pub and throw darts, but that's not practicing. <laughs> I learned a few thing, things about darts by Googling. Here's some things I learned. Players have walk-up music in darts. Jamie Lewis, for instance, his nickname is the Rasta. And his walk-on music is uh, Bruno Mars's Uptown Funk. Uh-huh. I don't know when they play the walk-on. Here's a big, fat, old guy. Let's see what his walk-up music is. The Trashmen, Surfin' Bird. This is so Even funny. Bunting. All the music that you've referenced, including just hearing uh, Seven Nation Army, it's all American music. So we are in our culture is influencing dark culture one way or another. So Sky Sports had a recap that I enjoyed every magical moment from the 2017 PDC World Darts Championship. <laughs> and their op- this recap of the opening day is just fantastic. The curtain raiser saw reigning world darts champion Gary Anderson record a comfortable opening night victory over Mark Frosty the Throwman Frost. Frosty the Throwman! Did well, you make that up? Was that Burmanesque? Or is that in, in the story? It's in the copy. Well, there were also wins for Kevin Painter, Michael Smith, and Jamie Lewis. World Youth Champion Smith won a five-set thriller against Rapid Ricky Evans, who threw a maximum in record quick time. Then there's this gif underneath the, uh, the write-up. Where it throws this guy throwing three darts in 2.16 seconds, perfect 180, fastest ever. I mentioned the pace of the game earlier. Mm -hmm. There's all this consternation and teeth gnashing about, will people want to sit and watch a three and a half hour college football game or a three hour NBA game or a long ass baseball game? Darts seems to be perfectly calibrated and attuned to uh you know the appetites of the viewing public it is totally raucous atmosphere people are throwing darts in 2.16 seconds there's loud music there's drinking there's a pa announcer who says 180 what else could you ask for in a sport i feel like they wear bowling shirts with logos on them no bowlers wear dart shirts good point and there's all this money in the sport, um, I think, increasing interest in watching it on television for darts. You know who like I hate the darts, now? the darts people need to take over all sports. Brendan Dolan, the history maker, his walk-on music is the Dropkick Murphys. Ugh, I'm but another U.S. band. It's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Another feature of darts, here are the, here are the uh, attire rules. Players are not permitted to wear jeans. Neither shall they wear trousers or skirts made with denim or corduroy material, which have been fashioned in a jeans style. <laughs> so that's nice for not only a restriction, but a good definition of anything that could be constituted as jeans. <laughs> no training shoes will be allowed unless the player provides written medical reasons from a qualified practitioner. The restriction shall also apply to any form of tracksuit attire. Oh, wow. I've got to change my tune on this sport. I know, a little bit restrictive. And there is drug testing in darts, by the way. And there is a disciplinary committee for the, uh, at the uh, 
World Darts Organization, whatever it's called. And I hope it's I hope it's DART. I hope the World Darts Organization is DART, and somehow you've retrofitted the acronym. And I hope the D <laughs> in DART isn't darts, because so I, I don't like that. I'll allow it to have darts, but anyway, I'm going to work on. I like this. I like Van Ger- Van Gerwen though. Has he's got a he's got a firm stand. He's a millionaire. His life has changed because of darts. Um, but he wants more drug testing in the sport. He thinks there is a there is there is a potential there. Problematic darts bridge they've all had their drug issues and the issue in darts frankly is a real one beta blockers it's sort of like shooting or uh or, or biathlon in the olympics anything that'll bring down your heart rate and focus you in is and there a, is, is a, a thing called issue. darditis where you lose the ability to throw the darts the sort chuck of, knoblock of darts that would be a good darts name steve Sa- <laughs> i was gonna say the steve Sachs uh, disease of darts but mm-hmm. chuck knoblock works too yeah but Van Gerwen is, by all accounts, the greatest darts player in history. And this final match where he beat Gary Anderson, the defending champion, and had an all-time record with 42 maximums mm-hmm. combined for the players, um, that's when you get uh, the maximum possible total. That's when you – I don't know if it has to be a 180, but a 180 is when you hit the triple 20 three times in a row. Um, I would guess that a maximum is just when – if you know, if you want to get a triple nineteen, and the triple that works twenty too. is the little sliver on the outer ring, yeah, right. But forty-two maximums, the beating the there were previous some quality, world record quality of, darts being beating thrown, the, beating the previous world record of thirty-four disciplinary proceedings. There were some good ones in twenty fifteen. Aaron Monk was suspended for three months uh, for reckless throwing of darts. <laughs> Nikolai McCollin. Wait a second, he threw darts at people. You can't do that. It didn't say he threw them at people. He may have thrown them to the ground in anger or frustration, which seems to be a, a no-no. Uh, Nikolai McCollin shouting, removing shirt, and running around at conclusion of match. He was sanctioned for that. Mervyn King swearing at a woman during an event. Kevin Thomas. Is there bring, a different uh, bring, uh, penalty bring it, for swearing at a man? Bringing alcohol into venue and drinking in changing rooms. They are firm in their disciplinary proceedings at the Darts Federation. Michael Van Gerwen was sanctioned for swearing on live TV, though I think he wasn't punished because the DVD was inconclusive. Fascinating. All right. He's your champion. Stop (laughs) swearing, Michael. DVD. (laughs) It says says NFA DVD inconclusive. We've solved a lot here. Still some uh, remaining mysteries. I encourage darts experts to take to our uh, Facebook page mm-hmm. and correct our 5,000 errors. Facebook.com slash hang up and listen slash darts. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Stefan, you did a lot of darts terminological research. You have a darts afterball name for us. I kind of like Oki, though I, I, that was a that was a, a quickie. Mike, you might have something better. The Oki is the throw line, also known as the toe line. Can't go over that line. Can't I go over that. the line for steel tip darts, according to Wikipedia. It is generally seven feet nine and a quarter inches from the face of the dartboard, measured horizontally. 
Here's a question I've always had and didn't bother to look up. Spelled O-C-H-E. If you have like super long arms, if you have like an NBA mm-hmm. like wingspan, would that give you a big advantage in darts? Or are you not actually allowed to just – does that not confer an advantage to just reach out really far? Can't answer that. Mike? <laughs> Mike um, would know. <laughs> Mike looks, yeah, should be able to Mike looks like is, a guy who would know. This is why Randy Johnson uh, also could have been the greatest darts thrower ever. Or as we mm. call it, dartser, dartsier. Yeah, if, if you had to hit the dart, yeah, Randy Johnson would have had a huge advantage. <laughs> Mike, what is your okie? So last night at the Golden Globes, Meryl Streep once again demonstrated her versatility, this time playing the role of provocateur. For not only did she laud those in her profession, she took dead aim and delivered uh, a rear naked choke to those who pursue another. Here, let's listen. Ryan Gosling, like all the nicest people, is Canadian. (laughs) And Dev Patel was born in Kenya, raised in London, and is here for playing an Indian raised in Tasmania. So Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. And if we kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which are not the arts. So why? Why that gratuitous takedown of the MMA? I would just rebut, I understand her point. It is a better world with artists, and let's not be mean to foreigners. But in defense of the mixed martial arts, one, they are arts. I'm sure Meryl Streep in her training got trained in the combat arts and stage fighting. That's a part of mixed martial arts. And if you go back in the history, forget what they call mixed martial arts now, but martial arts have as many arts components as they do of hurting the other guy components. Maybe not how it's played now. And I would reckon that if you looked at the pottery, let's say, of antiquity, you'd have more martial arts represented than you would even have thespianism. And the Greeks were adept at both. I just think that, you know, it's easier to have an urn with a guy kicking someone else than some guy talking about frogs on a stage. Aristophanes, shout out. All right. So the other thing about Meryl Streep talking about, you know, if we take out all the foreigners, we're only going to have mixed martial arts. Like mixed martial arts is mostly made up of foreigners. I don't know if you've watched the MMA lately. I doubt that Meryl Streep has, but it is a uh, melting pot. It is polyglot. Yeah. Dana White did endorse Donald Trump. And I was thinking maybe Meryl Streep could get sucked into the mixed martial arts with just a little rebranding. For instance, she made Sophie's choice. Maybe she'd be interested to find out about Sophie's hoist, Gracie, or maybe some martial <laughs> artists. This is my this is my plan. So there are some martial artists who already have nicknames. If only Chris Berman had been uh, calling mm-hmm. MMA uh, yeah. highlights back in his day. <laughs> or, you know, uh, perhaps the Chuck Liddell wears Prada. All right, here we go. That's not my real plan. My real plan is to convince some mixed martial artists to adopt nicknames because they all have nicknames and they all have tattoos, maybe tattoos of movie posters of the French lieutenant's women, woman. That could work. There is already, I found out, there is a uh, female mixed martial artist named, I think, Germaine de Randemire. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but she fights under the sobriquet, the Iron Lady. And... uh Meryl Streep played the Iron Lady. But what about, you know, here are some other mixed martial artists that if they were to just change their nicknames, maybe they would suck in Meryl Streep. Charles Brown, 
He's known as Dingo Brown. It wouldn't be too many steps for him to change his name to the Dingo Got My Baby Brown. She, of course, gave that line in A Cry in the Dark. And then there's uh, Marvin Eastman, who goes by, and there's a good nickname, Marvin the Beastman Eastman. But he could very easily be Marvin's Room Eastman, right? <laughs> that deserved that. And then there's Brian Foster. And just... You know, during this Oscar season, couldn't he rebrand himself Brian Foster Florence Jenkins? This is all I'm saying. If we get Meryl Streep on board, I think martial arts and the thespianic arts could come together in a glorious moment. You didn't uh, mention her broadside against football. Oh, yeah. Well, that who will who will stand in defense of the great sport of football Mm. from this vicious attack? Yeah, th- I mean, I think some football names we could uh, we could maybe entice her to watch uh, football if there was a guy named Teddy Bridgewaters of Madison County out there, or uh, if Charles Silkwoodson were to uh, patrol the backfield. You know, maybe postcards from an edge rusher. How about Craig Ironweed Hayward or uh, Brian Hartlineburn, or of course uh, the Deer Hunter Henry. Uh, Tommy Kramer versus <laughs> Tommy Kramer, uh, dear, or uh, defending your Mike Tice. That's uh, the seduction of Joe Pizarczyk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, what is your Oki? As I've mentioned, I'm writing a book about the dictionary. So last week I attended the annual conference of the American Dialect Society, mm-hmm. of which I am a dues paying member, which means I was able with about 300 linguists to vote on the group's 2016 word of the year. The winner by vote of raised hands was dumpster fire in lexical and emoji form. And the metaphorical use of dumpster fire is about a decade old and it has sports roots. In a good piece for the Huffington Post last June, Claire Fallon credited sports talk radio and specifically Colin Cowherd, who was quoted in a couple of blog posts in 2008 using the term dumpster fire. Now, that seems plausible because all of the early print metaphorical usage of dumpster fire is from sports. The first I was able to locate was Patrick Obley writing in the state newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina in 2006. Tank Johnson's life is a dumpster fire, he wrote. Two years later, Bob Kravitz of the Indianapolis Star wrote, look at the dumpster fire down in Jacksonville where emotional Jack Del Rio has players going south on him. The first non-sports usage I found is from 2009 and dumpster fire took off from there. After the Dialect Society vote, I was talking to the guy who nominated Dumpster Fire, Dan Villarreal. He's a linguistics postdoc at the University of Nevada, Reno, who, more important, is a listener of this podcast. And we noted that while the Dialect Society voted on several categories, the political word of the year was post-truth over deplorables, slang word of the year was woke, euphemism of the year was locker room banter and an upset over alt-right and fake news, digital word of the year was the at symbol used as a verb, as in don't at me which defeated my nominee, TweetStorm. So while all that happened, it was the show's duty, our solemn duty here to crown a sports word of the year. I put together my own list of candidates, put out a call to listeners on the Facebook page. Josh, Mike, and I are going to go through this now. Maybe we'll get to a finalists and we can vote. Or we can and can, pick I, one, and can I just say the TweetStorm is so much better than the ad yeah. symbol? Like so yeah. much. It's almost Thank like you. these people don't understand the internet. I got 16 tweets yeah. in a row to explain. Yeah. Uh, All right, here we go. My starter list for sports word of the year, Go Cubs Go, the lyrics to that song, Fly the W, the Cubs flag thing, 5,000 to 1, 
Leicester City, Deflategate, old, you can throw it out, but I wanted to mention it. Um, Take a Knee, Colin Kaepernick, of course. Paul Edmonds on Facebook suggested just protest, which I like, I think, more than Take a Knee. Goat, greatest of all time, Ali. Baseball author and Scrabble champion Peter Morris on Facebook nominated just greatest. George McGowan on Facebook nominated Ali. Um, I think Goat is good. It is. It was coined by Ali's people. They created a company, greatest of all time, Goat Inc. Um, it was later changed to Muhammad Ali Enterprises, but that's the derivation of that word. I uh, couldn't really find anything good from the Olympics. Russian doping, maybe. I was like whatever. Ryan Lochte responding to the fake, fake robbers. Josh nominated the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead in the finals. Now, I would say, Josh, this is a sentence of the year, maybe. So as commissioner of Sports Word of the Year, I'm going to cut it to 3-1. to one. The thing three that you're not one. considering, though, is that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead in the finals. Yeah. I think 3-1 to one encapsulates that. Todd Johnson also suggested 3-1 to one on the Facebook page. A couple more Facebook nominations. Jason Shin, Stick to Sports. Seth Grossman, Football Maneuver. Brian O'Gross, Believe Land for the Cavs and kind of the Indians. A little bit slogany, I think. Uh, Andre Berman, Take. Adam Hirsch, Hot Take. I just defined Hot Take for Merriam-Webster, so Hot Take will make the final list, I think. Um, Alex Noble, nominated Trust the Process. Sam Henke, Philadelphia 76ers. That's pretty good. And Andy Noble, Andy is Alex's father. I've sleuthed on Facebook. Andy is a deputy sports editor at the Baltimore Sun. He linked to a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette column by Gene Collier, who does an annual list of sports cliches. Collier's winner was In the Protocol, which is pretty good. Actually. Ooh, I like that. In the Protocol. You like that? Yeah, just most of these are things that happen, but I don't think they would satisfy the lexicographer's task, which is to, you know, put your finger on the word that either was popularized or gained mm -hmm. widespread acceptance or somehow describes everything. Like so, a classic one of these is football move, right? Right. Yeah. Football yeah. maneuver, somebody, yeah. uh, somebody, and, and somebody take, nominated on Facebook. Take or hot that's take, that's a point. couple yeah. years old, I think. How about right. second second chances? Why? Well, all these uh, terrible football players who beat people up, and then they're told we're told. I believe it's, it's got to be chance. something distinctly 2016, though, which is yeah. why it's it's tricky. You got to merge the lexicographical emergence of a word or term or or. Symbol I think in the protocol is the with, best one. Yeah. You like in the protocol? Yeah. All right, we'll put in the protocol in our finals. I here's my my finalists. I would say, how do we feel about? I think you got to nod to the Cubs. Fly the W. Yeah. Better than go Cubs go. It just no. wasn't so ubiquitous. Okay, scratched. Yeah. 5,000 to one. Leicester City. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Too English. Yeah. That's okay. Can make the finals. Doesn't mean it's got to win. Three to one. Josh, I'm sorry. We give, I'm sentence. You can't do a sentence. I like protest though. I think it was Language very simple. Language evolves, Stefan. Sentences are the new words. Sentences are the new emojis. Protest, very simple. Greatest, I also like. And goat, I liked in the protocol. Um, I think we should choose from those or should we let the people choose? Up to you. I'm the commissioner. You are. All right. You got to vote? I say in the protocol. In the protocol, Pesca? Yeah. In the I like that. It jumped out. That was my blink reaction. In the protocol. I would go with protest, um, but I'm outnumbered. So congratulations to In the Protocol, your 2016 sports word of the year. Thanks to Pittsburgh Post-Gazette columnist Gene Collier for choosing it. 
clearly the people's choice. Thanks to Andy Noble of the Baltimore Sun for nominating. Thanks to Alex Noble for also nominating. Thanks to all the Nobles, entire Noble family for nominating, for listening, for playing along in the protocol. Josh, what's your Okie? So there's been some talk uh, on the internet about uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame, my favorite uh, conversation topic. Who's on the ballot? Who's going to get in? Who's going to fall off? And Jeff Bagwell, Tim Raines, Trevor Hoffman, these are your leading uh, contenders. A lot of animated chatter about Edgar Martinez, Kurt Schilling. What What about Kurt Schilling and the character clause? You've got your Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens still hanging around, and then, you know, your fringy candidates, your your Billy Wagners, your Jeff Kents. Then there are these guys. If you play in uh, the major leagues for 10 years and you're retired for five, the kind of gold watch that you get is you get to be on the Hall of Fame ballot. That's the honor. It's an honor just to be nominated. That's what I believe. So Matt Stairs, Congratulations for being on the Hall of Fame ballot. You did it, man. Congratulations. Professional Arthur Rhodes, way to go, sir. Freddie Sanchez, Pat Burrell, Casey Blake. I knew you could do it. Uh, Melvin Mora. All right, let's focus on Melvin Mora. You remember Melvin Mora, Mm -hmm. right, Mike? Oh, yeah. An all-time great Matt utility player. He had a great catch. He had uh, a lot of positions okay. Yeah. He had his moments. Oriole. With with the Mets and and the Orioles. Probably not a Hall of Famer, but he's on the ballot this year. So now is he's our... on the ballot. So arguably, he is Hall of Fame worthy. What do you guys think is the most statistically noteworthy accomplishment of Melvin Moore's life? Uh, had an OPS triples. plus of one fifteen for three years in a row. Led the American League in triples three times. The answer is that he uh, is the father of quintuplets. Ah. <laughs> According to Yahoo that. News in 2008. Yes. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they got mentioned a lot. The chances of having quintuplets are one in 57 million, which is probably like, you know, a little bit more of a stretch than leading the league in triples. Did or... he miss a game when his <laughs> wife delivered the quintuplets? <laughs> Great question. I don't know the answer to that. So my friend Dan Ingber uh, sent me a torrent of texts the other day when, A, he found out that Melvin Moore was on the Hall of Fame ballot and was confused. So we had a conversation about the 10-year rule. And B, when he was Googling Melvin Mora, and there was an autocomplete for both Melvin Mora quintuplets and Melvin Mora sextuplets. Mm. So there is a lot of confusion out there, mm. not only about Melvin Mora's presence on the Hall of Fame ballot, but about whether his wife, Giselle, who is the all-star mom at home, according to USA Today, uh, about whether she gave birth to five children or six children. So Dan helpfully sent me this email. Uh, Header, evidence for the quintuplet theory. 2002, New York Times. Melvin Mora changes positions as often as he changes his children's diapers, references quintuplets. Mm. That USA Today story, Giselle grew up in Brooklyn, New York, as the all-star mom at home. Yahoo News, the chances of having quintuplets are one in 57 million. 2009, Baltimore Sun. Genesis plays a mean third base. Matthew wants to be a veterinarian. Christian likes sushi. Jada is a budding gymnast. And Rebecca has a crush on the Orioles' Brian Roberts. Well, that's a, that's a quality, I guess. So that's five children. Good thing it wasn't a crush on Luis Polonia. <laughs> God, that's horrible. 
2014, video evidence. Stan provides of Mora and his quintuplets throwing out the first pitch at an Orioles game. Well, that would seem to be uh, rock solid. But wait, counter evidence for the sextuplet theory. Melvin Mora himself in a 2006 interview in a book, that book titled 50 Things Every Guy Should Know How to Do. About the Expert, Chapter 11, How to Care for Children. Melvin Mora is the starting third baseman for the Baltimore Orioles and the father of sextuplets. This written in Melvin Mora's words, having sextuplets means changing a lot of diapers. At first, I didn't know how to do it, so I watched my wife doing it. I saw her holding a baby and changing a diaper, and I knew I had to do it because there was no way she could do it by herself. With with six kids, I've had to change as many as 40 diapers in one day. So I'm inclined to think that the authors of 50 Things Every Guy Should Know How to Do, which also features Bernie Kosar, legendary quarterback on how to throw a spiral. Uh, I feel like maybe Melvin Moore actually didn't say that. Wait, wait, wait. Bernie Kosar <laughs> was able to throw a spiral? The, this is another uh, claim in, the, in this book. Yeah, I feel like maybe Melvin Moore didn't actually say that, or maybe he was so sleep-deprived that he didn't actually realize that he only had five children. He does have actually more than five children. He just has uh, quintuplets. So Copley News Service in 2006 wrote a review of the book How to Care for Children, which noted the contribution by Melvin Mora, the father of quintuplets, parenthetical, the book says sextuplets, wrong. So Copley News Service tells us Melvin Mora, quintuplets. If you happen to be Melvin Mora or have any information that suggests that the answer is actually sex tuplets. Please go to our Facebook page. The word of the year, quintuplets. Or is it sex tuplets? We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment or a rating and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. I think it's Mickey's uh, last show this week. Thank you, Mickey, for all of your great service over the years. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Melvin Mora returned to the Baltimore Orioles on Monday, two days after his wife gave birth to quintuplets during the season. Jesus Christ. No wonder he's not going to make the Hall of Fame. So two days, that's about nine hours uh, per child. That seems right.